electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. I am Brian Sullivan, and tonight, vowing retaliation, Beijing in an uproar over Speaker Kevin McCarthy's meeting with Taiwan's president. Could American business be in the crosshair? Rental apartment buildings sending up a troubling red flag about the economy. The battle between the PGA Tour and Live Golf taking center stage down in Augusta at the Masters. Elon Musk now even has NPR in an uproar. How do you do that? And they're breaking developments on Costco after hours. That and much more ahead. So belly up or buckle up. Last call is up right now. Well, good evening here and good afternoon out west. We are going to get to all of those important stories and headlines this hour. But first up on last call tonight, is this a pending doom loop for many American cities? In Chicago, Brandon Johnson has won a close fought race for mayor. Now, a couple of highlights from his tax plan, which he says will target the suburbs, airlines and the ultra rich. These include a new tax on trading stocks, a new per employee head tax on companies, a jet fuel tax, increasing taxes on hotel stays, among other things. The mayor-elect says it will generate an estimated $800 million in revenue, estimated the key term. Now, this all comes as many companies are leaving Chicago's, and they aren't just small ones. Last year alone, Chicago lost the headquarters of three big companies, Citadel, moving down to Florida, Boeing, moving to outside of D.C., and Caterpillar, moving to Texas. Certainly cost of living, among other things, one concern. But there's also the growing concern about crime. If employees don't feel safe in the city or safe getting into a city, how do you get them back to the office? A man well known to this network, Terry Duffy, the CEO of the Chicago Mercantile Exchange, called the situation, quote, insane after his wife was carjacked last month. Let's be clear. This is not just a Chicago problem. It is happening in cities across the country, L.A., San Francisco, New York City, Portland, Oregon, you name it. Inhospitable business environments are forcing companies and workers to often pack up and search for other pastures. In San Francisco, a new poll this January, a couple of months ago, revealed that 71% of businesses there said they are somewhat or very concerned about employee safety while taking public transit. Only 7% said they aren't concerned at all. And today, a sad story. We learned that a well-known tech executive reportedly stabbed to death outside of his apartment building this morning. He lived just a block away from where Google's San Francisco city offices are located. Here's the bottom line for business and cities. If offices can't get workers to come back in for whatever reason, rents are going to collapse, huge amounts of debt could be defaulted on, and many local businesses, many, by the way, run by families or first-generation immigrants just struggling to put food on the table, are likely to go under. For reaction, let's bring in Michael Schellenberger, former environmental activist, founder of Public, a Substack publication. He's also the author of San Francisco, a book about homelessness and addiction, that I think should be a must-read for any big city. He has spent countless hours on the streets of San Francisco speaking with and trying to help many of those struggling with both. Uh, Michael, thank you very much 
for joining us on Last Call. And I want to keep this primarily focused to the, the business and economic angle. The last time I was in San Francisco, which is not that long ago, walking around near the Embarcadero, where CNBC's offices are, countless companies are, I was shocked at what I saw. It was, at three in the afternoon, fairly empty. Yeah, that's right. It's, uh, first of all, it's a very sad day. Uh, Bob Lee, who was killed, uh, is a well-known and well-liked high-tech executive. We don't know, we don't have a suspect yet. The police haven't mentioned a suspect, so we don't know what happened. But it's important to keep in mind that homicides are up 20% in San Francisco this year. Drug overdoses are up. The situation on the streets is so bad, the mayor has requested federal help. There are tents and open-air drug scenes, open-air drug dealing all across the San Francisco, the, the city, both near the Embarcadero where you were, but also near uh, Civic Center, which is where Twitter is. I've been at uh, Twitter a fair amount over the last uh, few weeks, and it's pretty empty. It's like a ghost town in many ways right during the middle of the day. So, you know, it's too bad because I think San Francisco wants to come back. There's a lot of excitement around artificial intelligence, a lot of work to be done, but people aren't going to want to come back if they're afraid of getting killed or, or mugged or assaulted in the city. And, and that's key not just for San Francisco, but a lot of other places as well. And I brought up that statistic from the Bay Area Council. 71% of companies are worried about their employees' public safety. So if you're living in the East Bay and you're taking the bar yeah. to cross it, if you can't get people to come, and I know personally, Michael, people who work downtown and have said, I don't want to come downtown, not because of the commuting time or whatever, but because they're afraid. Yeah, it's very simple when you get down to it. You know, it's the estimates are somewhere between a vacancy, a commercial vacancy rate next year of between uh, 40 to 60 percent, you know, just eyeballing it about 50 percent. But those numbers will change if people feel like it's safe. Look, I, I think uh, it, this is a very dramatic moment. The mayor needs to get control of her city. I think the, the Chicago is a wake up call that cities want to see change. And the mayor needs to take action. She needs to do things and then make the courts stop her. She needs to get control of the city, which is in a free fall. She may need to get National Guards on the street to stop the drug dealers from harassing and assaulting people. This is a very serious situation, you know. And yeah. we, we know of a case where a woman, her legs rotted away on the streets, a mentally ill woman. So this is just at the, this is beyond anything any civilized society should allow. Tw tw quickly, Michael, 21, the same Bay Area Council survey, 21% of companies said they were they're planning on reducing their total office space in the Bay Area. Only 11% said increasing. Uh, based on what I saw, just with my own eyes, is, is there a chance, you I know you're not like some commercial real estate expert, is there a chance that San Francisco could go bankrupt? Yes, absolutely. I... <laughs> And nobody's talking about it, but of course we, that's we what, just what did. could happen. It's a downwards. What's that? We just did. Yes. Yeah, it's a downward spiral. And I think that, you know, it's we keep thinking that they've hit bottom and that something's going to happen. But the mayor needs to apologize to the police. She needs more police on the streets. If she could look, people want to live in San Francisco. It's an amazing city. But if you don't feel safe there, then they're going to go to Austin or to Florida or somewhere else. I mean, it's crazy, the situation on the street, and how bad she's let it get. Yeah, and, and you've been documenting this stuff, and you're trying to help. You're trying to get housing. You're trying to get treatment for the addicted as well. And uh, Michael Schellenberger, we appreciate you coming on Last Call. Thank you very much.
All right, let's open this conversation to our panel. Operation Hope CEO and Chairman John Hope Bryant, former SEC Chair Jay Clayton, and former White House Chief of Staff and former OMB Director Mick Mulvaney, all in person, by the way, tonight. It's great to see you guys. Thanks for schlepping out to New Jersey. We appreciate it. Serious topic, obviously. Uh, John, I'll start with you. You're in, you're in Atlanta. Atlanta's been the beneficiary of many of these companies leaving places like Chicago. They're like, you know what? Let's go to Atlanta. What can we do to make sure that places like Atlanta remain business friendly? Or maybe do you have advice for Chicago or San Francisco? Yeah, what you need here is a radical movement of common sense. I mean, even if you want to distribute money like a socialist, you have to first collect it like a capitalist. You, you, to say defund the police is silly because bad guys are hearing that, real bad guys who mean you no good, and they're going to the go. The new mayor of Chicago said that. Now, he said it two years ago. We'll but, see how he feels today. But, but hold on a minute, because I, I think that this is a – I think that the new mayor of Chicago is, is, has got some good compassion that can be useful because he can get everybody's attention and their respect. And he's going to realize pretty soon, pretty quickly, that it's like raising children. I'd rather you respect me and learn to like me than like me and never respect me. He's going to have to be disciplined and compassionate in the same breath. But my point was – it's wrong to say defund the police when there's real bad guys listening. It's also wrong to say bootstrap yourself when you have no shoelaces. In Atlanta, we took the people who were selling water on the street corner and turned them into entrepreneurs. And these drug dealers, I mean, an illegal drug dealer, it's unethical, but it's also, these are not, people are not dumb. They understand import, export, finance, marketing, wholesale, retail, yeah. customer service. So how can you turn these people, can you turn this into opportunity to Read Gang Leader for a Day. It's a book came out, I think, about 12 or 15 years ago about Chicago. It's a fascinating read on just that point that you were trying to make. You know, you, you look at it. Okay, the CEO of McDonald's, Jay, CEO of McDonald's, a couple months ago in, in a print interview basically said, you know, we might leave Chicago. There's no guarantee that we're going to stay here. It's one of America and Chicago's most iconic corporations, a place like Atlanta or, or Charlotte, would love to have a McDonald's. Look, if you, if you can't make a decision based on five, six, seven years out, what you think your city's gonna look like, what you think your community's gonna be like, what you think the talent pool is gonna be like, it's very hard to commit capital. And, yeah. what, and what we're seeing, to John's point, a lot of people post-COVID, they're re-examining their office footprint, they're re-examining operations, and they're saying, okay, where are we gonna make investment for the next five years? If you're a city that can't say to that company, here's what it looks like. We're going we're gonna to have, have stability. We're going to have low crime. We're going to have a workforce. You're losing. And you know what? There is, there is something good here, which is there's competition among cities. Hopefully the competition among cities will be a little bit of a wake-up call for a place like Chicago. So am I the only one here who thinks I actually like what happened in Chicago? And I know that sounds straight. I'm a conservative Republican, and I think it's fantastic simply because it's the American experiment working, right? We get a chance to see what higher taxes look like, what lack of law enforcement looks like, and you can sort of say, okay, maybe it works. I don't think it will. I don't think it's worked ever in the history of the planet, but they want to try in Chicago again. I think it's fantastic that they get a chance to fail, and other cities can do it a different way. I hate it when people come in and say, look, this is what we're going to do, because uh, we know better well, than you. Mick, the people uh, in Mick, Chicago... You can't get a city back once that happens. Sure you can. Absolutely. New York it has takes, been up and down. Uh, it takes a long time. But, know, again, part of this is tongue-in-cheek. I get that. But face it. The people in Chicago voted for this. We get the government that we want. We get the government that we deserve. They just kicked out Lightfoot because she was soft on crime and put in somebody who is essentially the same. Why is to, that? To Brian's point, let, 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 me, um, let me say 
we can't look at our older cities and our newer cities the same way. One of the things that's that, a great point. I one, agree. One, one of the things that happens in older cities is we have multi-generational networks. Okay. Grandparents help out kids, these kinds of things. When Chicago, Philadelphia, when you lose that, when those people go south, it's really hard to get that multi-generational network back. And that's an important part of the city's fabric. So, so Mick, look, I, I, I get what you're saying, but this is not an academic exercise. Real people are going to die and be, and be hurt because of this experiment if it doesn't work. So we need to all be rooting for, for the mayor to win. And I know you are, That's so right. I'm not suggesting you aren't. But I think that what we have, the, the mayor's going to run into some pretty hard realities pretty quickly. Because his auntie's going to say, baby, uh, my girlfriend just mugged on the street. You need to do something about that. His cousin's going to say, hey, man, my car was, my wife was carjacked last week. Like, you need to do something about that. So he's going to, on the one hand, have compassion for unjust policing. But he's going to get pressure pretty quickly it, to do well, proper policing. And to find opportunity for people who, because it really is about jobs. Why the lack of well, that's, I want to hold on. I want to bring it back to the CNBC angle here. A lot of people are going to argue about, you know, crime or whatever, which yeah. is do companies have the ability, Mick, to, to be that voice and that element of change? Sure. Absolutely. Right. Corporations need to go to the new mayor and absolutely. say, hey, Mr. Mayor, yeah. we're going to give you a shot. But you've got to fix this because I can't get my employees who live in, you know, Hinsdale to take the subway or, you know, the train in to work. Don't we think that Boeing had that conversation? Don't we think Caterpillar had that conversation? Don't we think Citadel had that conversation? I have no I mean, idea. Sooner or later, folks are going to vote with their feet. And I think that's a very American thing to do. I don't want the city to fail. Okay, but if it does, maybe it's an example to other cities as to what not to do. And there has to be value in that. So I couldn't say this before now, but uh, and I can't say the person who had the conversation. Sure you can. Okay, it's Bill Daly. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, so I had lunch with Bill Daly, and he told me that the, the, now the mayor came to him and had a conversation about how do I get the business community to understand my vision. Now, I wasn't in the meetings. So I can't talk out of school about what else they said. But I was inspired that he actually came to Bill to ask for counsel about how to talk to the business community and not just talk at the business community or not just to say, can I, I'm going to tax you to death. Maybe, maybe he's actually in a vision where this is going to be an investment. If it's an investment and we get crime down and opportunity up and GDB pops, then it's an experiment. Here's an insane, I'm going to, I'm going to, here's an insane idea. Okay. Because why not? Should the business community, not through taxes, because you just pay a dollar in taxes, a lot of that money is just used to fund the government. It doesn't go to the end result of what you want the tax dollar to go for. You know that as the I'm OM. A, I'm a little familiar with that. It's like yeah. 90 cents or whatever goes to something else. <laughs> Could corporations step up and help fund directly some of these initiatives? Of course. Not through donations. Internships. Not through taxes. Well, no, no. Direct payments to lure in more police. Oh, okay. Good. Well, I mean, that's what they uh, they talked about doing this in Chicago, right? Was it Chicago where they were or was it San Francisco? I'm sorry, I can't remember where they were going to require small businesses to have their own private security in their establishments. Well, that's just that that is insane. But that's, that's, I'm not talking about hiring. My friend's wife is a is a store manager on Michigan Avenue. And the stories that she has told about you need an appointment. You know, it's a higher end store, but like they have security. Like the costs are just out of control, but it's a lost leader because they want to have you know, basically, it's like the, the marketing angle of it. I'm talking about, I, look, could I, McDonald's pay money to help build the Chicago police force back? Could, could you? Of course. But isn't it pretty wild that we're taking the core functions of government, safety, um, education, and we're saying, can't businesses step in and do that for government? If you, 
If you can't do those core functions correctly, yeah. why how are you going to do the why, other things? Yeah. Why, why are you in business? Why are you doing it? Well, let me, let me get it. Let me get, let me I told slide. you it was insane. Let's have a slightly different angle. Right? During the 60s, a little known fact, Ambassador Andrew Young, who was with Dr. King, Dr. King would shut down the economy through marching. Then he would say, Andy, go meet with 100 business leaders behind closed doors. Cut a deal. Get the whites only signs down. So Dr. King, Andrew, would put his, his business suit on, go cut a deal with 100 business leaders, not the mayor, not the governor, business leaders, because 60% of all the residents were black. And they couldn't get on the front of the bus, but the, the color was still green. So Andrew Young had some leverage, the economy. He got them to take the whites-only signs down. The city got de desegregated. It should have been the government. It was actually the private sector that did it. Mm -hmm. And then the, the private sector leaders went to the mayor, told him to knock it off. So it, there, you can have a private-public Business public can be a force for, well, money, for money, money talks, as we money, know. Yeah. Business can be a force for good, but not when business is the bad guy. And for a lot of folks right. in this country, business is the bad guy. And that, I think, that's a problem. I think this is a great point. you got to give business the opportunity to do the right thing. And continuing to tell them that they're the problem is not giving them the opportunity to do the right thing. Well, and that's, listen, if we see another major company leave the Chicago area, let's say McDonald's. United just, Airlines? You're not, whatever. Why they would say, they stay? Southwest? I, I don't know if the airport at O'Hare is in the city limits or not, but Midway certainly is. Do you think Southwest is going to keep the hub there if they have to pay the extra tax? Why don't they leave? They, they, that airplanes move. It's what they do, right? You see United leave. You see Southwest leave. Is that enough to send the message? But wasn't, you would think that Boeing and Caterpillar would have been enough of a message in the first place. Well... Yeah, the San Francisco news was, was just awful, obviously. And uh, Chicago, we'll see. We're all rooting for Brandon Johnson. We want him. Chicago's a great city. You know, you want it to succeed. Bro, what if you had the, uh, a Jay and a Mick that went into Chicago along with a Bishop T.D. Jakes and, and Andrew Young, like an advisory group uh, that yeah. would actually give, bring big ideas to small cities? You know cities. what? I'm speaking in Chicago June 7th, I think it is. Let's do it. Well, let's go. Let's, let's put let's it go. together. In addition to that, we'll do last call We're going on the live road. from Chicago. We're taking That's this it. show on the road. We just did it. Thank you, Mick. You're to pay. All right, up next. China blowing a gasket over Speaker Kevin McCarthy's meeting with Taiwan's president. Could it take its own rage out on American companies? Plus, why apartment buildings Maybe the new front line in fears about the economy? A lot more to do. We're back right after this. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. Capella University is rethinking higher education. With their game-changing FlexPath format, you can earn your degree on your schedule, so you can fit education seamlessly into your life. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. All right, welcome back to Last Call. Here's what happened to your money today. A relatively quiet day on the street of dreams. I should never say that. Tomorrow's going to be crazy then. The Dow was up a tiny bit. The S&P slid a little bit. The NASDAQ, though, fell 1%. Tech, once again, the weak spot. 
Maybe a little good news for anybody out there looking to buy a house. The 10-year Treasury yield hit its lowest point in more than six months. Why do you care? Well, many mortgage rates are tied to this number. So if that bond yield goes down, rates should, we'll see, but should also follow down. On the flip side, the gold bugs. The gold bugs are out. Gold hitting close to an all-time high today, trading at 20, 20, 2,020 bucks. That is just a hair below its all-time peak of 2,072 back in August of 2020. We love gold. You know who you are. All right, let's also take a look at how futures are shaping up for the morning as well. Oh, there we go. Futures right now down just a touch. But again, we got to show them to you, I guess. But the volume is terrible, so just take that with a giant grain of sea salt. Taiwanese President Tsai Ing-wen is making the rounds through the United States. Today, she met with U.S. Speaker of the House Kevin McCarthy in California, despite some threats from China. During today's meeting, House Speaker McCarthy and President Tsai emphasized the importance of strong bonds between Taiwan and the U.S. in light of the growing tensions with China. Listen. The friendship between the people of Taiwan and America is a matter of profound importance to the free world. The peace that we have maintained and the democracy which have worked hard to build are facing unprecedented challenges. We are stronger when we are together. Now, China's already expressed its disapproval, releasing a statement a short time ago saying, quote, China firmly opposes and strongly condemns the visit, demanding the U.S. cease all official exchanges with Taiwan, which, of course, China believes is still a part of China. Joining us now is former U.S. military officer and current senator, Joni Ernst. Uh, Senator, thank you very much for joining us. You met with President Tsai along with President Dan Sullivan of Alaska. Can you take us a little bit inside that meeting? What were some of the key points that were made both ways? Yeah, absolutely. So we had a bipartisan group, um, Senator Dan Sullivan, Mark Kelly, and I met with President Tsai of Taiwan last Friday, and it was a great meeting. And we focused on a number of opportunities between Taiwan and the United States. Mostly, it did focus on the military and how we can strengthen Taiwan's military. So uh, the president, she spoke to this quite eloquently. She really stressed the importance of the United States military engaging with her members of the, the Taiwan Armed Forces and making sure that we are helping them modernize and working on training efforts with them. Uh, very, very important. We also talked about trade between our two nations. It's so important for my Iowa farmers to have access to their market. And if we have a strong trade partnership, we know that it weakens the, uh, the communist China's efforts of coercion and their tools of coercion. And then, of course, we talked about the transfers, the backlog of military equipment mm-hmm. platforms that have been paid for by Taiwan. So we need to make sure we're building as fast as we can and and getting those platforms onto Taiwan. You know, Senator, whenever I mention to people that smart people like yourself and others that I speak with say that there may be a chance of of direct military conflict between the two, you get poo-pooed a lot. So that's insane. That's never going to happen. Is there, and I hope that's the case, is there a chance? I mean, how far is the United States willing to go here? Of course. I think there is always a chance, and that's why we need to make sure that we're deterring any aggression by China. And we do that by building up the strength of Taiwan. 
if we hope to thwart China, we need to make Taiwan is make sure that they are as strong as possible. And we should be doing that right now, today. You know, don't let these uh, transfers of military equipment languish. We have to make sure that our defense industrial base is uh, developing these systems. They're making them as, as quickly as possible and that we're working on modernizing the Taiwanese army uh, quickly. It needs to move faster. They are, are trying to modernize, but they have just got to move faster. We can enable that with training mm -hmm. and empowerment of their forces. Senator Jody Ernst, uh, the great state of Iowa. We appreciate it, Senator. Thank you very much. You bet. Thanks, Brian. Oh, you're very welcome. All right, to further delve into what is exactly at stake as pressures between China, Taiwan, and the U.S. grow, former U.S. Naval Intelligence Officer and counterterrorism analyst Malcolm Nance joins us right now. Uh, Malcolm, welcome to CNBC. And, and last call, uh, this appears to be ramping up. I mean, China is certainly building out its, its military, its Navy is now larger than ours is. How does this play out over the next couple of years? Well, it's going to play out exactly as China wants it. They're trying to play on the geopolitical sphere as a global player now. And they are making concrete steps towards that. First, when we talk about their increasing their Navy, they are producing more frigates this year than we'll produce in the next 10 years. Uh, they have new modern shipyards. But that capability doesn't mean that they're going to have the capacity to actually overcome the defenses of Taiwan. They view Taiwan as a rogue province. Taiwan has a military capability. And another one of the things that China will have to factor in there is if they want to be a global pariah the way Russia is. They have market share. Do they want to lose market share? How much of that are they willing to lose if they decide to go to a military sphere? I think the Chinese are going to try to play it both ways. They're going to try to increase that power. They're going to try to show that they have flex uh, out in the in the uh, Asia-Pacific sphere. They're going to also wait to see what happens with Russia and Ukraine, to see yeah. if Russia becomes a vassal state and a new market for Chinese goods that they didn't have before. You know, Malcolm, we're CNBC. We try to come at it from the money angle. We just You, you might have heard us talking about Chicago and San Francisco and corporate America. Right. Does Taiwan have any economic leverage over China? Here's the reality. Taiwan produces a majority of the world's semiconductors, some of the most critical components in the world, stuff that then actually does go to China to be then assembled into something else. If there were some sort of an invasion, Taiwan would, I'm guessing, effectively shut down. Wouldn't that also then shut down a critical part of the Chinese economy? Well, it would. But if China were to make a move on Taiwan, they would have to have already calculated all of the losses that they would be taking, not just in global market share, the loss of capital around the world, sanctions being imposed upon them. We would feel a lot of that pain, too. All you got to do is walk into a Walmart and see, see everything disappear from the shelves. But just think of it this way. Taiwan's semiconductor industry is also a plus force for the United States, which is why we're seeing the current administration start to ramp up and bring semiconductor uh, manufacturing back to the United States. And if I were the White House, I'd be looking at putting it into places like, I don't know, Chicago uh, and cities that are having, you know, that have a, a, a job, uh, a, a dearth of job growth. And we could actually partner with the Taiwanese to where that industry would be protected by being moved to the U.S. Not to mention, as we fight in Ukraine, we are learning some very serious lessons about the industrial base of building modern advanced precision weapons systems, which don't just appear magically. Uh, they have to be replenished. Wars consume. 
And for us to actually support Taiwan, we would have to have two to three times the stockpiles that we have currently mm. in the U.S. And we're going to need those semiconductors for that. You know, I like the idea. Maybe somebody hopefully out there, Taiwan semiconductor. Now, I am old enough to remember Foxconn and Ken the dreams of Kenosha, Wisconsin. Didn't happen. That was China. Maybe Taiwan will come in. But I love how you, you tied it together, Malcolm. Thank you for that. Thanks for coming on. My pleasure. All right. Still ahead, new housing numbers are out. But what do they say about the healthy American economy? I'll tell you. Next. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx. All right, welcome back. Time now for our last call watch list. We're running through a couple of stock stories you might have missed or just didn't hear about. First up, FedEx on the tape announcing plans to reverse a move they made years ago. FedEx is going to recombine all their businesses, FedEx Express, Ground, other services, into one operating company like it, like it used to be when it was called Federal Express. Stock was up just 2% at the close. After hours, not a big move. Anyway, here's the CEO speaking with Jim earlier this evening. With one company, we are able to be much more effective and efficient. We'll see. All right, stock number two, Costco, seeing the weakest monthly sales growth in three years. So still growing, just not at the rate it was. Another sign maybe consumer spending post-pandemic is shifting. Costco says customers made smaller purchases in March with the average transaction size down 5.8% from February. Costco stock down a little bit. After hours, oh, about two and a quarter percent. Stock three bond trading platform market access. It tanked today, down nearly 14 percent. Emerging markets, the weak spot and spooking investors. We're only bringing this up. You probably don't care about this company at all. But it's one of the most important bond players on Wall Street, down 14 percent. Worries about the emerging markets. Thus, it made the watch list. All right, next up, some not so good news in two different segments of real estate. Number one. Sales of rental apartment buildings are on the decline and fast. CoStar Group says the number of sales dropped, get this, 74% from a year ago. That is the fastest rate since the financial crisis. Number two, home sales are down in the very wealthy Hamptons, declining 44% compared to first quarter of last year. Median home sale prices also fell almost 8% the first time that has happened. Since 2019, now a three-bedroom by the beach will only cost you $75 billion. Joining us now to break it all down is Kunjan Banerjee, markets reporter at the Wall Street Journal. I know most of our audience doesn't have a house in the Hamptons. Maybe some do. They probably don't even care about the Hamptons. Basically, it's the Beverly Hills of, of far eastern Long Island. But it matters because it's kind of a crystal ball for Wall Street, is it not? This is a big deal, Brian. We are seeing the housing market, the real estate market get hit hard. You know, the Fed has been raising interest rates at the fastest pace in decades. And real estate is kind of the center of where it's hitting right now. You know, as, as we at the Journal recently reported, rental buildings down, you know, recording some of the biggest drops since the subprime mortgage crisis. And 
When I talk to friends who are out there in the housing market, maybe looking to to buy a home in the suburbs, you know, they're they're getting priced out by these mortgage rates, which are five percent, six percent. And the question is, how much worse does it get? Because what we've learned the past few weeks is that these small U.S. banks are a really big deal in the U.S. economy, and they could pull back on lending the rest of the year. And many investors are expecting them to pull back. You know, there was this great Goldman stat. Um, recently, which showed that banks uh, with under $250 billion in assets, they make up around 50% of commercial lending activity, around 60% of of residential lending activity. So that's a key Mm. area to watch. And I think that's why a lot of investors are on recession watch right now. And then that, you know, that 74% number, Gunja, I mean, that's, that is a stunning decline. And again, it goes back to our segment at the very top of the show where we're talking about crime. People say, well, stick to the economy. Don't go social issues. This is the economy. If crime increases and people leave or companies leave and they don't have enough people, there's hundreds of billions of dollars of commercial real estate debt at risk. Is there not? And a lot of it, to your point, is held by these same regional banks that I'm told just had a little bit of an issue a couple weeks ago. That's the big risk out there. I mean, zooming out, isn't it just wild how quickly things are taking a turn? You know, how quickly SVB went from thriving to, you know, its equity is worth zero. And then how quickly we're seeing the real estate market turn. And and I think that's why we're seeing this flight to safety in the market this week with the yield on the 10-year Treasury note. It's rallied for, um, or it's fallen for six consecutive days, the biggest streak Since March 2020, gold prices are high. You know, this is why investors are on edge right now. And uh, we've seen a smattering of really disappointing economic data recently outside of housing. Um, So let's see what the jobs report looks like this Friday. But all of this data and, and the housing market and the jobs data that we saw this week is really upping the ante for that. It really is. By the way, the market's closed on Friday. Bond market's trading a little bit not and not liquid. We could have a really volatile bond market day on Friday if that number comes at all screwy, for lack of a better term. Gunjan, thank you. Good to see you. All right. A lot of heavy stuff tonight. Let's lighten it up a bit. Head to Quicker Than the Ticker. All the news that matters in the world of business and a few stories that probably don't matter at all. Let's put 60 seconds on the clock and go. NPR is now considered U.S. state-affiliated media on Twitter. It is partially financed by the government, but operates with editorial independence, which is classified in Twitter's own policy as not state-affiliated. NPR calling the move, quote, unacceptable. In other Elon Musk news, he is no longer the world's richest person. Bernard Arnault, CEO and president of luxury conglomerate LVMH, is now at the top of the cool $211 billion fortune. Shocking footage of a car flying into the wall of an athletic complex in Belgium. Look at that. You can see the driver hits a roundabout, flies through the air, hits the wall. Driver is alive, but in the hospital. It is the world's most famous cartoon plumber, now on the silver screen. That is the trailer for the new Super Mario Brothers movie that is out today. It's expected to do $125 million at the box office, and you can be sure I'll be taking my son. Isn't it amazing how much has come from the video game Donkey Kong? I mean, literally that, all of this, Super Mario, all that stuff, a movie came from a plumber with a hammer who liked to hit barrels filled with fire while chasing a a gorilla who apparently stole his girlfriend. That's it. 
All right, we come back. Marvel's former chairman is speaking out for the first time since his ousting by Bob Iger, and he is holding little back. Plus, the epic showdown between the PGA and Live Golf is about to get underway at the Masters. An insider will take you straight to the green. All right, welcome back. And we have got some tomorrow's news tonight coming out of the Disney and Marvel Universe. Ike Perlmutter, the now former Marvel chairman, is speaking out for the first time, being ousted by Disney CEO Bob Iger. Robbie Whelan, the Wall Street Journal reporter who conducted that interview, joins us now. I mean, Robbie, good to have you on. Mr. Perlmutter, Ike, whatever you want, he did not hold back. He did not. That's right. Uh, he's ticked off. What's his primary beef for those who have yet to read it? And I urge everybody to go read it. Well, I think that Ike, um, he, if you recall, in 2015, when he was removed as the head of Marvel Studios, which is arguably the most successful Hollywood studio in, in history, um, he, he felt sidelined at that point. And um, as Bob Iger noted on this network at that time, he he um, he said there was still some some lasting bad feeling between the two men um, that last to, up to today, and I think that what we're seeing now is the result of that bad feeling. Um, he, he's been let go, fired, uh, he says, and and although the company disputes that characterization, but he he said he was fired because he just didn't mesh. His style didn't mesh with with how Disney likes to do business, and and his main problem is that he thinks Disney spends way too much money. And the funny thing about this whole thing is that if you listen to what Disney's been saying for the last few weeks, I think Disney thinks that Disney spends too much money as well. Um, you've got you've got Bob Iger uh, going on the record recently saying he doesn't know if, if, if Marvel should be making three and four movies about the same character. Um, we've had some trouble with, with kind of, uh, you know, some shakeups in, on the special effects side of things. Victoria Alonso, who was the head of special effects for Marvel, was recently let go over what Disney says is an unrelated issue, but it's it's kind of interesting timing. We've got, um, you know, people talking mm-hmm. very explicitly about making changes to how Marvel does business. And then you hear you got, you've got Ike Perlmutter, a guy who's been talking for years about changing way how, how Marvel does business. And he and he gets kicked out the door. Well, <clears throat> I can see both sides. I mean, Mar- Marvel was, you know, just a comic book company for 50 years. I collected comic books as a kid. I could, and I know that a lot of the movies that are being made now are actually the storylines from like the X-Men in 1983. But that said, I did also, to your point, kind of find it a little bit ironic that the head of Marvel, who spends, they spend hundreds of millions on some of these movies like Iron Man 8 and Thor's Pecs and whatever they are. I mean, these are the most expensive movies that Disney makes, I assume. Yeah, I'm, I, those are the Star Wars movies are, are certainly up there in terms of budget. Uh, Thor's Pecs is incidentally my favorite my favorite Marvel title, actually, of all oh, time. Who's, who's not? Um, no, but you got to understand who Ike Perlmutter is, okay? This guy, um, he, he's not hes not the comic book nerd that Kevin Feige, the head of Marvel Studios, is. He's not, I, I doubt he even really reads comic books that often. he What he is, is a turnaround specialist, and he always has been. I mean, he came to this country in the 60s from, from Israel, and he um, basically had no money to his name. He's been involved in countless companies, a number of companies in the uh, in the toy industry. And what he does is he finds a company that's not doing well, has distressed assets, and he he buys them on the cheap, um, cleans up the company's finances, and and flips the company and sells it. He's made a lot of money doing that, and that same model is the model he applied to to Marvel. So it could have been anything. I think to him could have been comic books, could have been action figures, which he's dealt in before, could have been. 
that have been shaving razors, which he's dealt in before. Mm -hmm. He just happened upon a, a company that was in bad shape in the 1990s. He, he outmaneuvered a few competitors to get control of Marvel, took that out of bankruptcy, and it happened to be the most valuable library of intellectual yep. property in entertainment today. And, and so that, that's where he's coming from. That's his mindset, his philosophy. Well, one person told me for this article that, you know, Ike thinks of cost savings as a religion. And he, he and Disney is it? That was not people at Disney didn't feel the same way. Yeah, they're a creative company, by the way. A great article, Wall Street Journal. Robbie Willen, appreciate it. Thank you very much. By the way, John Byrne, thank the you. all-time best. Well, we'll celebrate. Thank you. We'll go see. We'll go see Thor's pecs together. All right, time now for a Sully side up. A little bit of good news, CNBC style, but this one does come with a little bit of a caveat. All right, we get it. With the price of everything sky high these days, especially food, there is one place you can still eat on the cheap. The Masters Golf Tournament. That is right. The most prestigious golf tournament in the world is actually one place you won't find food inflation. Menu prices are like stuck in the 80s. You can get a chicken biscuit for breakfast for just two bucks with a $2 coffee on the side. If you're still hungry a little later in the day, the famous pimento cheese sandwich, still just $1.50. But if you're a real high roller, you can get a Masters barbecue or club sandwich and a white wine, Chardonnay only, for a total of nine bucks, you can't even get a two-ounce pour of Chardonnay for nine bucks in Manhattan. But here's the big caveat we mentioned. You still have to get to and get into the Masters to get these prices. Assuming you were lucky enough to get an official ticket, it's 140 per day. Not terrible. But if you're buying on the secondary market online, you're paying 2500 per day and up. And that is not even including the price of finding a place to stay. Hotels are sold out far in advance. And renting private homes can be like buying a decent used car. But we figured that if you were one of the lucky ones going to the Masters, you probably weren't too worried about these costs anyway, but you could feel better as you wash down your $1.50 egg salad sandwich with a $5 beer. All right, speaking of the Masters, all right, the big match facing disruption that the PGA is not happy about, and that is from Live Golf. All right, you probably heard about it, but if you don't know what it is, the Saudi-backed golf league will have a major presence at the Masters this year, with 18 players being represented out of the total 88, including big names like Phil Mickelson, Brooks Koepka, and Sergio Garcia. But why would players move away from the PGA at all? Well, let's look at some of the numbers. The top earner in the PGA last year was a guy who also won the Masters last year, Scotty Scheffler, made $14 bucks. The other top earners, look at that, not far behind. Meanwhile, the top live golf earner, Dustin Johnson, made $35 million last year, and all others had bigger paydays as well. Look at that. So what does this mean for the future of the PGA? Joining us now is Golf Channel's Damon Hack. Damon, uh, none of those 10 people we showed, by the way, would have any problem affording the pimento and cheese sandwich. I just want to make that very clear. Uh, how big of a deal is this that the live golfers, you know, are coming on to the PGA's turf at Augusta? Well, they're coming on to Augusta Nationals turf. Uh, live golfers are still not allowed to compete on PGA Tour events, but this is Augusta National. Uh, the chairman and the members decided to, to uh, allow the live members to play. You have six uh, past champions who are live members, including the likes of Phil Mickelson, Patrick Reed, Sergio Garcia as well. It no question was a huge storyline at the start of this week with the PGA Tour players and Live players, would they hug or would they shove each other? But this is the Masters tournament where a civility reigns. And so far, uh, it's been nothing but love 
uh, in here in the early part of the week at Augusta. Very quickly, before I get to Tiger Woods, how is Live Golf doing? Do we know? Well, you know what? The, the players who are patronizing that tour seem happy. As far as television ratings go, uh, they're not doing very well. Not a lot of people are paying attention a week to week to what Live uh, is doing from a tournament standpoint. But as the players, they kind of made their bed and they're sleeping in it now, but they're probably sleeping very comfortably from a financial standpoint. But as far as raving in terms of uh, of the eyeballs that are watching, yeah. uh, very, very scant numbers uh, in the early going for Live yeah, Golf. I do wonder also if it goes away, if Live Golf goes away, will these, will these golfers be welcome back? Anyway, I want to talk about Tiger Woods saying, not sure how many more masters he has left in him. Do you think Tiger, I mean, horrible car accident last year, among other issues, do you think he's ever going to win again, Damon? I don't think he's ever going to win a major championship again. I think 2019 was the huge mountain that he climbed when he won that fifth green jacket, when he won that 15th major championship. He seems more reflective at 47 maybe than he's ever been. Look, he has that fighter spirit. Uh, he is a competitor, a grinder. He will do everything in his power to try to do so. But I think with players half of his age and who are – you know, building his image, working out in the gym, doing everything they can to win. I think it might be too big a mountain to climb to expect Tiger Woods to win again. Yeah, and maybe lucky to be alive after that car wreck where he rolled his car over in California as well. So, Damon Hack, hey, good luck. Big four days coming up. Thank you. Thank you, Brian. All right, coming up, we go back in time to remember the life of America's first billionaire. Do you know who that, who, who, what? I actually didn't look at this. Who was America's first billionaire? Carnegie? I don't know. We'll see. Answers ahead. Movie maker, aviator, businessman, innovator, germaphobe, you name it. Tonight, we are remembering the life of one of America's, America, one of, because we're we got a challenge on this internally now. One of America's first billionaires, Howard Hughes. After inheriting his father's fortune oil and gas drilling company, Hughes moved to Hollywood, where he began producing movies such as Hell's Angels and The Outlaw. But of course, his love was airplanes. Hughes expanded his business empire by founding the Hughes Aircraft Company and then buying TWA, Transworld Airlines. He also helped design the Constellation airliner, the XF-11 spy plane and the H-1 racer, which he then himself piloted to a new world speed record of 352 miles an hour. He also almost died in a plane crash. But his reputation as a businessman and designer took a hit. In 1941, the government commissioned Hughes to build a large flying boat for the war, nicknamed, of course, the Spruce Goose. Hughes' massive plane briefly flew one time in 1947, two years, of course, after the war had ended. Hughes increasingly became a recluse and his health deteriorated. And 47 years ago tonight, Howard Hughes died, some say on a flight from Mexico to Houston. But his legacy does live on through the Howard Hughes Medical Institute. It is now one of the nation's largest private funding organizations for biological and medical research. Of course, there's the Howard Hughes Corporation as well. There is the Aviator movie with Leonardo DiCaprio, kind of an enigma figure. By the way, we can fight. First billionaire may have been John Rockefeller. If not, might have been Henry Ford. And if John Rockefeller were alive today, his fortune would be worth almost four hundred billion dollars 2x the current richest guy that's a lot of money thanks for watching we'll see you tomorrow take care
This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx. 